All right, well, um, if you weren't here with us last week, we started a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, which, since we read it aloud together, can anyone tell me where it is now? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Yeah, okay, so three chapters. We read the whole thing last week, so I hope you guys enjoyed that. Give us a little bit of perspective and context for the sermon. Um, So, if you guys, that's another announcement. If you guys didn't hear that, we have the Paradox podcast up online on the DSC website. So if you just click, click on Ministries at the top, and then Paradox, and then over on the right of the Paradox page, it's a podcast. So if you guys want to listen to last week's kind of intro, um, you can do that. Um, so we are going to get going today with what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. It's the first 12 verses of chapter 5. So let me just read those aloud real quick. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Have any, have any of you guys seen the movie Glory? rated R, so if you haven't seen it, ask your parents about it. It's rated R because it um, has some pretty intense war violence. But it's a movie about the Civil War, about uh, this all-black regiment who are former slaves, most of them former slaves. Some of them are some just free black men in Massachusetts, but they're all, they've all found their way up north during the middle of the Civil War, and they decide that they want to fight for the Union. They want to fight for the North to fight against the South so that their families and friends who are still in slavery can be free. And the movie begins with them just all a bunch of ragtag former slaves coming to boot camp. And they're led by this guy named Colonel Robert Shaw. And he, Colonel Robert Shaw, this is a true story. This is a real guy. Um, he, Robert Shaw saw a statue of him in, in Boston. Um, he was a rich, wealthy guy, went to West Point, was a military graduate. He had never really fought, and he wanted to do this. He was all for the abolition movement. He wanted to free the slaves. And so he wanted to do this noble thing. So he decided he wanted to lead this black regiment. But for the U.S. government, for the U.S. Army, at the beginning, having a black regiment was just kind of like a, hey, this sounds like a good idea. It'll give them something to do type thing. They weren't really committed to allowing these guys to fight. And so in the movie, you see they don't get uniforms. They don't really ever get guns. Um, like halfway through the movie, when they're expecting to get their first paycheck, the, the guys come out and they tell them, you're not getting paid. And so what happens, it's an amazing scene. Um, Robert Shaw, who's played by Matthew Broderick, a.k.a. Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller walks up with his paycheck, and he says, 
if you will not be paid, then I will not be paid. And he tears up his paycheck. And at that moment, these men who were just kind of like, they weren't really willing to follow this just kind of white guy, colonel, hotshot, rich man. At that point, they were like, I would follow that guy. And then they start to come together as men and as soldiers and as a unit. And at the end of the movie, I won't ruin the whole thing, but he gets off his horse and he takes out his sword and he walks in front of them. I'm going in this with you guys. And they begin to take on the characteristics and the identity of their leader. I think a lot of what the Sermon on the Mount is exactly that. We have a colonel, a leader, a messiah, who comes up and says, if you will not be paid, I will not be paid. He takes on our sin, he gives us, us, gives us his righteousness, and then we begin to take on his characteristics, his identity, and we follow him and become like him. Okay? So, as we talked about last time, the Sermon on the Mount is often interpreted as a bunch of just rules, a bunch of laws that we have to do, prerequisites to become a Christian. You do this, and you become a good Christian. I think it's exactly the opposite, right? Remember we talked about how grace is shown in chapter 4? Jesus just starts healing people, left and right. He's not making them uh, do a bunch of laws and commands. He's just showing them grace. And then, after they're shown grace, what does he do? He now gives us law. He begins to shape us and mold us into people who are following him. So, if I could have one little catchphrase for these Beatitudes, for what we just read, is what one of my seminary professors called it. A posture of heart. What's a posture? Many of you have very poor posture right now. I'm looking at you. Uh, our, pretty much anyone under 50 right now has terrible posture. I, I certainly do. Matt, I, yes, I, I often sit just like Matt. Right? Posture is just kind of the way you, the way you kind of hold yourself. Right? So it's, now I have straight posture. Well, what I want us to think about is a posture of heart. The way our heart kind of holds itself, sits in in relation to who God is and who Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. So it's not necessarily, like we said last time, not about what we do, but who we are as followers of Jesus. Okay, so what is a beatitude? I think a beatitude is just something, a little short little statement, something like blessed is or blessed are. So like in Psalm 1, we see a beatitude. Blessed is the man who sits not in the counsel of the wicked, that kind of thing. That's a beatitude. So what does blessedness mean? What, what does it mean to be blessed? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Favor, right? What? Yep, happy. Yeah, I think both of those things are true. I think um, happy, content. I like to think of blessing, kind of like, you know, like those old Looney Tune commercials, I think Looney Tunes, maybe they're Disney commercials, where somebody is walking around and there's like a rain cloud following them wherever they go and they can't escape it. It's like the universe is kind of like against them, at odds with them. It's like the opposite of that. So like wherever you go, wherever there's rain and cold and wind, there's like this warm sunlight following you wherever you go. And it's like God's favor upon you. It's warmth, sunlight. So I think warmth, Warm is the man who is this, right? God's blessing, his warmth on us. Notice 
that it's, these are present tense, right? Blessed is or blessed are. It's not if you do this, then blessed are you. These are not if-then statements. Like, if you are good this year, Santa will bring you a new bicycle. This is not this. This is not, this is not even grace, right? We don't earn God's blessing or favor on us, right? I think the Beatitudes and the rest of the sermon are saying, when you are a follower of Jesus, when you follow him into battle, these things will necessarily be true of you. And if those things aren't true of you, you need to kind of think, am I really a follower of Jesus? Okay? So this is where we're going with these. Remember, law always follows grace. I'm going to keep pounding this for the next nine weeks. Always. It happened when when Moses gave us the Ten Commandments. It was after the grace of the Exodus. When Jesus gives us the law and the Sermon on the Mount, it's after grace. Okay? Don't forget it. Okay, so let's get going. We need to move. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember we've talked about in today's culture, like self-importance, autonomy, independence is one of our greatest values. We can't stand people who are helpless. We're just like, it's one of the things we celebrate most in our culture, in our stories, in our history, in our movies. The guy who like pulls himself up by, the, by his bootstraps and he's, I don't know, he's an immigrant who came here with nothing and then he makes a multi-million dollar corporation. We love those stories. Someone who can make something out of himself, right? And this is true for us as well. We love our independence, making something of ourself. Have you guys seen the Truman Show? With Jim Carrey, right? Truman Burbank. Uh, this was like 1996 or 7. This movie is about this kind of reality show in that they, uh, this entire society is like this enclosed bubble, this little city. Um, and everyone in this little city exists. They're actors in this reality show. Truman, Truman Burbank, Jim Carrey, is the only one that doesn't know he's in a reality show. Um, so his, from the day he was born to when he was a little kid and when he was growing up in high school and dating and college and all that stuff, all those people were actors. And everybody outside of this city, all of us in America are watching. There's a 24-hour-a-day Truman show um, that you watch Truman. You can watch it. You can turn it on at 3 o'clock in the morning, and Truman, there's Truman asleep. There's little hidden cameras all over the city. And it's bizarre, right? But don't you kind of think you're Truman Burbank? I do. I think that I'm the main character. Even now, you guys, you 75 or 80 of you are just kind of supporting characters in my little main story right here, right? Or when you go to, you're walking down the halls of your high school, you think that you're the main character in your own teen romantic comedy, right? And if, the, if these people are getting in your way, these supporting characters are just the antagonists in your story, right? I hate to break the news to you, but you are not the main character in your story, as I am not either. This is a grand story that God has given us where he is the main character and we are the supporting characters. So, what does this have to do with being poor in spirit or poverty of spirit? The first, this, there's, this, it's no accident that this is the first beatitude. We start here. We cannot be a follower of Jesus. We cannot be a Christian, unless we first recognize our poverty, that we do not have anything good to offer God. 
we are not the main characters. It's the cross chart, right? Remember what, we've, what we showed on the screen so many times and with arms, right? We cannot really believe and trust in the cross of Christ unless we understand how good and holy God is and how sinful and just terrible we are. And it's then when we recognize our poverty of spirit, our poorness, that we don't have anything to offer, that God begins to shape us and mold us. Um, one, of, one of society's greatest criticisms about Christianity and religion in general is that it's a crutch, right? Have you ever heard this? That only people who are hurting, right, find this Jesus guy, and Jesus gives them some hope, I don't know, like a My Little Pony would or something, right? Um, and he keeps them up. But it's not true. It's just a fairy tale. Um, but it just gives us kind of hope. John Piper says, that's true, and that's, it's even more than that. What's wrong with Christianity being a crutch? It's more than a crutch. It's an entire ICU, right? Only those who recognize their great need, not just to kind of hold them up, but to bring them back to life, can really believe the gospel and can really be, start to be shaped by it. So here's where we start. Poverty of spirit. It's the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. We've got nothing. Okay? Like the Pharisee and the tax collector, we've talked about him, right? The Pharisee is trying to offer all these things that he does and who he is, but the tax collector says, I have nothing. God have mercy on me, a sinner. So that's kind of our model for poverty of spirit. So if that's who we begin to see ourselves as, as poor in spirit, then I think the next one kind of flows out of that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, how does that flow out of it? Well, we don't, we don't really like mourners, right? I read a blog post a couple weeks ago about this, I think it was a mom who was saying that when she, well, her, her daughter, I think, died. Her daughter or son, young daughter or son died. And she said, before this, I didn't know how to deal with people who were mourning at all. When I would see them in the halls in church, I would step into the bathroom. Not because I like, didn't, care for them, but I just didn't know what to say and how to interact with them. So she wrote this blog post saying, here's what was helpful for me, and here's how we as the church should come around and comfort those who are mourning. We don't naturally like mourners. It's kind of like a, a wet blanket, right? You don't really like know what to do with it, right? So what is Jesus going after here? Why is he talking about blessed are those who mourn? I think if we look at the Pharisee and the tax collector, we see a man who is mourning his own state, his own poverty of spirit, his spiritual bankruptcy. God, I hate being this way. I have nothing to offer you. Um, I think it has to do with mourning our own sin. But it also has to do with mourning the world around us. Ecclesiastes 7.2, Solomon writes, it's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. Why would that be? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Why would Solomon write that? I'll give you another example while you think about that. A seminary professor who, say, who said that he would, 10 times out of 10, rather preach a funeral than a wedding. He said, I'd rather bury him than marry him. Why would he say that? To encourage, okay? Why, why would he be able to encourage someone 
better at a funeral than a, a wedding. Good. Nathan? Yeah. So at a wedding, it's a party, right? We're all here. Like, if I come to you and say, like, hey, you, I, you really need the gospel. You're in deep sin. Like, hey, man, don't bother me. I'm here to dance, right, and eat some cake. At the funeral, there's a guy in a box behind us. And it reminds us, I am going to be in a box one day, and I'm going to be buried in the ground, just like the guy right here. And it reminds us of our short lives, our spiritual poverty before God, and the gospel begins to speak to us. So I think this is what Jesus is going after. Blessed are those who mourn not only their own sin, but the way the world is around us. And we begin to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come and fix this broken world, okay? A posture of heart says, Lord, I have nothing to offer. Come and fix this broken world and my own sin. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does meek mean? Nathan, I'm going to begin to put a limit on the times that you can answer, but go ahead. Gentle, okay? What else? Yep. Shy. Shy. Submissive, humble. Okay? I think the best place that we have to help us define what meekness is is in the book of Numbers. We won't turn there real quick, but here's the story Miriam and Aaron are Moses' brother and sister. And without giving a ton of backstory, they're pretty mad at him for doing something, and he, they, they, basically saying, Are you, you're not the only guy that can speak for God. They say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? They're like, hey, I'm tired of this guy getting all the credit. Let us lead the people for once. And the Lord heard it. And then listen to this. This is the very next verse. Why would this be the very next verse? Now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And then it just kind of goes on with the story. So what happened? Did we see that what we would expect, they criticized Moses, and he, like, defends himself, right? No, he, he doesn't say anything. The very next sentence says, and the Lord heard it. So instead of defending his own honor, Moses allows God to defend him. He says nothing, and then God immediately comes in and, like, he gives Miriam leprosy, and like he is pretty ticked off that they are the ones attacking Moses. So this isn't just gentleness, shyness, humility, submissiveness. This, those are all true in that story, but this is the same Moses who came down from the mountain and saw the people worshiping a golden calf, and he has them melt down the calf into this gold liquid, put it in their water, he makes them drink it, and then he kills them. So he's not just always humble and gentle and shy. What are the differences between those two stories? Why does one one story produce silence and not defensiveness, and one story produces killing the whole lot of them? Yeah. 
okay? Who were the people attacking when he killed them? That's right. They were worshiping a false idol, and he killed them for it. Who were they attacking when he was meek? Himself. So if this is our definition, along with some other definitions that we don't really have time to get to, Jesus is commending someone who is more concerned with the defense of God's honor than their own. Okay? So when your brother or sister is taking forever in the bathroom and it's time to go, and you say, how dare they take so long? Don't they know that I'm the main character? We don't get angry at them and yell at them and try to defend our own honor, right? We meekly come to them and encourage them and remind them that there are other people here too. When someone cuts you off in traffic, right, if you're driving now, what's our natural reaction? How dare they? Don't they know that I'm the main character, right? These are other people who are, we don't have to defend our own honor. Or when your parents or a friend or one of us, maybe in the next few years, comes to you and points out some way that we're concerned, maybe you're living in some sin, it's especially true when your parents come to us. What's our, what's our tendency as parents? You were this way too, I'm telling you, by the way. When your parents came to you, what's our, what's our natural tendency when our parents come to us and point out a concern? I'm not that way. You don't, you don't understand me. Uh, you don't understand the situation. Whatever. We're just defensive, right? We're naturally defensive. This is not meekness, and this is not what Jesus is committing. This is not someone who is a disciple or follower of Jesus. Listen to this quote. Individually, each man tends to assume, so all of you tend to assume, without thinking that you are the center of the universe. Therefore, you relate poorly to the six billion other people who are laboring under a similar delusion. So we all think this. We all think that we're the, sim- the center of the universe. So we're always clashing with each other, right? Jesus says the meek man sees himself and all other peoples under God. And since we are poor in spirit, we do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Therefore, we begin to relate well with each other. Okay? That's from Don Carson. Again, a posture of heart. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Does anybody know what happened in September of 2005? Nathan, you were four, so I'm guessing you don't. But some of you juniors and seniors, anybody remember what happened then? No, that was 2001, but yeah. I'll give you a hint. It was one of the worst natural disasters that's ever happened in the United States. Hurricane Katrina. So this was the very beginning of my senior year of college. And so it was spring break, so about six months later, um, I wasn't really involved with a campus ministry called Campus Crusade at University of Texas. We had about 80 people just go to this little town called Bay St. Louis. It was about an hour east of um, New Orleans in Mississippi. And for some reason, I don't even remember, everyone else took a bus, but four or five of us guys had to get back early or something, so we drove in a car. And we, what happened was, so these houses, we went into this little town, the waters flooded so high that it would lift up everything in the house up into the ceiling tiles, and then when the water receded, everything came down, including the ceiling tiles and about two feet of insulation on top of it. And 
so everything was in the house covered in ceiling and insulation, and it had been that way for like six months. So then add on a couple few more inches of mold. So we went in and cleaned out, me and 10 other guys, we just worked on one house for like three or four days. And then we were, all of us were doing this all over the city. So we stripped, we pulled out everything and stripped out everything, all the walls to leave nothing but just the wood studs from the house. So we did this for like three and a half days. And on the last day, we had worked till like two. And we had to get back that night for some reason. I don't even remember. And we're driving. We, didn't, we worked through lunch. We're driving through these rural Mississippi and Louisiana highways, and we are starving. We are hungry, hungry. This is, I think, the most hungry I've ever been in my life. And finally, like a word from the Lord, we see the, you know, those green exit signs with the food? Cece's Pizza. And I was so happy. And it remains to this day a top three meal I've ever had. Not because of the quality of food, but because of my great hunger. Okay? This is what righteousness is to a follower of Jesus. We didn't want CCs so badly, and we weren't satisfied so badly that day because we were somehow aware of the biology and the anatomy going on in my anatomy, saying that I. My calorie level is less than my output or whatever it is. I just knew I was hungry, and this delicious pizza and cinestics was going to be amazing. Okay? In the same way, we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't hunger and thirst for reading the Bible or gathering together as the people of God to encourage each other or hunger and thirst for praying or hunger and thirsting to become more like Jesus because religion tells us to. Because this is the way that we should be as people of God. This is what Christians do. We don't do all those things because we follow the rules. We do these things. We hunger and thirst for righteousness because we know that there is nothing more satisfying to us. God has designed us, as John Piper talks about in several of his books, to get the most joy possible. We tend to think of going to church and Christians as those who like, try to abstain from joy, right? We, we don't like to do all the fun things that non-Christians do. This is not true. God has designed us to get the most joy possible as human beings. But where is the source of the most joy possible? Jesus, yeah. So this is true, though. Jesus, over and over, not just him, but God in the Old Testament uses this food and water, hunger and thirst metaphor all the time. The woman at the well in John 4, he talks about how he's there to basically provide uh, satisfaction for a hunger that she's been hungering for her whole life so that she'll never hunger again. She'll never hunger or thirst for water again because he is there to satisfy her greatest need, her greatest delight. So righteousness isn't just some holiness thing that we just seek after, just to get better. This is something that is our greatest delight and greatest satisfaction. What if this is not true? Not just this one, but what if this is not true of you? What if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or you don't really have this poorness or poverty of spirit? First of all, again, this is where we start with poverty of spirit, poorness of spirit. 
Remember the cross chart. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector. To begin to be a follower of Jesus, to begin to believe the gospel, you have to first give up trying to earn your own righteousness. And I know that we all, like I talked about, on a theological exam would totally agree with the song that we just sang that Cody led us from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that we are saved by grace alone. But functionally, do we really live that? Or do we try to keep earning our righteousness before God by showing up at church and reading our Bible? We have to first give up trying to earn our own righteousness and trust in what Jesus has done for us. Trust in the grace of chapter 4. So again, a posture of heart. And it's only then that we begin to mourn our own state, mourn our own sin, become meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, we're going to move a little bit more quickly through the rest of these. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? Right? This kind of sounds like an if-then statement, like if you're good this year, you'll get a bicycle. If you are merciful, they shall receive mercy. Is that what it's saying? You have to show mercy to others before God will first will, will then forgive you? I don't think this is what it's saying. Does anyone, does, does this call to mind a parable that Jesus told to anybody? Okay, yeah, that's coming up very quickly in the Sermon on the Mount. What about a parable, a story that Jesus told? He had a debt to the king, and then um, he... Did he owe him a lot or a little? A lot, okay. like life-saving sort yeah, of thing. Like millions of dollars. Yeah, and so he, the king gave him free, like set him free from his debt, said you don't have to pay it. And then he, the guy went to another guy who owed him money. Did he owe him a lot or a little? A lo- uh, little, very little. Like five bucks. Yeah, and he, he attacked him because he was saying, um, he was saying, you need to pay me my debt back. And then the king found out about it and put him in jail right. until he paid his debt back. Whammo. Great. Okay, so that's exactly right. And I think that's what Jesus is getting after here. That guy who was forgiven millions of dollars then went and put a guy who owed him $5 in jail. He did not understand the debt that was first, or the the forgiveness that was shown to him. I think this is what Jesus is saying, that someone who has been shown mercy, a follower of Jesus, one who has been forgiven of the great debt which we owe to God of our sin, truly understands the enormous amount of forgiveness that we've been shown, we will then begin to easily show forgiveness to other people for lesser offenses. So, again, posture of heart, right? The one who is not merciful, if you are not quick quick to forgive, you should use that as a time to consider how you're not submitting to Jesus and how you're not being poor in spirit because when you are not merciful or forgiving to others, you are in a sense saying that you're not aware of your own state as a forgiven, a forgiven sinner. You kind of think that you don't need mercy. Okay? We cannot picture ourselves as miserable and wretched. And if that's true, then how can God be merciful and forgiving to us? So it's not works righteousness, 
But it is an opportunity for us to reflect on our lives to say, am I trusting in Jesus in this? Am I following him? Am I becoming like him? Okay, so blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This sounds like works righteousness, does it not? You've got to be perfect or stop sinning to see God. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I think he's saying something different. And we're going to keep fleshing this out over the rest of the sermon. But I think what he's talking about in purity here, there's a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and he defines purity as, listen to this, to will one thing. So what does he mean by that? What's that? He wants to be what? Yeah, yeah. So we're not willing two or three things. We're willing one thing, a purity. There's not like split motivations here and there where we're thinking one thing and doing the other. I think Jesus is calling for a purity of heart in where we begin to live for God's glory rather than our own. So an undivided heart, okay? Jesus is going to keep talking about this in the Sermon on the Mount. James and Paul will talk about, like, especially James, will talk about a double-minded man, right? I think this is what he's kind of going after, where he has, he's thinking about one thing and doing the other. He has two minds, he has two wills, he has two hearts, okay? So a purity of heart. So when we begin to follow and become like Jesus, we begin to live for God's glory rather than our own. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. All right, on this one, let's start at the beginning. So is this, is this talking about adoption here, that great doctrine of God adopting us as sons and daughters? I kind of don't think so. I think he's talking more about, like we were talking about, taking on the character qualities of God. So when John the Baptist calls the Pharisees, you sons of your father, the devil, is he saying that Satan has adopted them as sons? No, I think he's just saying, you are acting like the devil. You are being like him. So, when we are peacemakers, we will be called sons of God. We will be like God. And I think it's important to notice, just like Colonel Shaw in glory, his men took on his character qualities, that Matthew, I don't think accidentally, shows us how Jesus is all of the Beatitudes in the rest of his book. So he shows us poverty of spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, God, if there's any way for me to redeem my bride, the church, give me a way. But if not, I will willingly go joyfully to the cross for them. I trust in you. He mourns over Jerusalem in chapter 23. And he says, oh, that I would gather them in like a mother hen. They won't repent. So he's mourning over them. He shows meekness, right, where he doesn't defend his own honor at his trial and at his arrest. And he hungers and thirsts. He doesn't necessarily have to hunger and thirst for righteousness because he's he's righteous in his very nature. But his father's approval was his greatest delight. He was merciful towards lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors. He was pure in heart and that he willed only for God's glory, not his own. He was a peacemaker at the arrest, at his arrest with Peter when he cut the soldier's ear off. We'd like to stop there, right? I mean, we can't do any of those in our own attempts. 
right? But I think we could say, yeah, that sounds pretty good, right? And if we do all those things, if we are that way, then we'll have a great community, we'll encourage each other, we'll be blessed, meaning happy and warm, and everything's just going to be great, right? What's the last one? And I think several commentaries that I've read have separated verses 10 and 11, but I kind of think it's, it's one beatitude here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus' ministry is never what we think it is, right? The high king of heaven, where would we think? If we were writing this story, where would the high king of heaven be born in? Like a palace or something, right? But no, he's born in a stable and a manger. And he doesn't live as a prince, but he lives as a son of a carpenter. He spends time with prostitutes and tax collectors rather than priests and kings. And he died on a cross rather than reigning and sitting on a throne. That's amazing. But his ministry is never what we think it is. So it comes to no surprise for us that we can expect to be persecuted if our leader, if our king and Messiah was persecuted, even put to death. So the peacemaker, you who are wanting to resolve conflict in your house and in your classes or even here in this youth ministry, the peacemaker who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who shows mercy to others, is doing great violence to Satan's temporary reign here on earth. So we should expect him to retaliate with great violence against us, right? just like he did against Jesus, and as Jesus says, just like he's always done against the prophets who are before you. So we live in a pretty great country, right, where we're not afraid to be thrown into prison or have our heads cut off or anything like that, like Christians are right now in other countries. That's great. However, we're going to be persecuted for our own beliefs. We've seen this, Matt saw it yesterday, as he was called a name while he was working at Chick-fil-A. Um, so we're going to be persecuted for our beliefs, but listen to this. I think Satan and his kingdom is just as happy, satisfied, and content with you getting your head cut off. He may be more satisfied and content than you getting your head cut off with you being lured into the idolatry of and comfort of your TV, uh, your friends, your comfort, your continual worry about your body image, what you look like, the approval of your friends around you, you never submitting yourself to prayer, your poverty of spirit. And if that's true, then we can expect him to begin to lure us into that comfort and that idolatry. But this is the gospel, that Jesus has come to set you free from the idolatry of the self, the worship of yourself, you were sitting over here in a dark and musty and cold corner of a prison cell. And you would rather be there than anywhere else. You would rather be there than outside in the warm sunlight with other people. But Jesus, unexpectedly, you didn't see it coming, 
and the prison guard for sure didn't see it coming, comes in and he throws wide open the door to your prison cell. He says, come on, we're doing it. You didn't have to plan your escape. Not a, you didn't even want it for the first thing, but you didn't have to figure out a way to, like in Count of Monte Cristo or something, like dig a tunnel underneath to escape. You didn't have to pick the lock and elbow the prison guard on the way out, right? All Jesus is saying is, come on, let's go. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to shower first and get a good shave and take off your tattered rags so you look good on the outside. He's just saying, let's go. Come on. But he tells you, all you have to do is walk with me. Walk out of this prison cell. That's all you have to do. But when we get out, it's going to be hard. We're going to battle here. He's like Colonel Shaw saying, we are walking into the thick of it. And there are going to be bullets whizzing by, and you may not make it out alive. You don't have to do anything to get out of here and make your own escape. But when we get out of here, you may not make it. But just the sheer sight of him, just the sheer warmth of his being, for the first time in your life, you realize, I would rather be with him than sitting in that dark corner. There is nothing more satisfying and delightful to my soul than to be with him. And as we walk through for the rest of our lives, we become like him. And the same free grace that called us out of that prison cell for the rest of our lives is going to continue to say to us, don't go back. Don't go back. So it's our nature. Remember, we always wanted to stay in that corner. We didn't even know we wanted to get out. So it's our nature for the rest of our lives to say, I kind of want to go back. This is kind of getting hard. I'd rather sit in the cold, dark corner. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I am better than that. Stay with me. Stay with me. Free grace. You don't have to do anything to stay with me, but stay with me. It's hard. Stay with me. It's better and more satisfying than anything that you can imagine. Well, what if we kind of do want to go back, though, right? We're not really like the person he's describing. We're not really always meek and a peacemaker. We don't really always recognize our poverty of spirit. Well, first thing, you're not going to. I just hate to break some news to you. You are going to fail. You will not be a peacemaker always. You will not always be meek. You will not always have poverty of spirit. All of these things. I certainly do not either. That's the good news. You're going to fail. But remember, always grace. Always grace. And remember, as we begin to become more like Jesus for the rest of our lives, as we begin to take on his characteristics, his own traits, listen to this. I read this on a blog this week. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says, when it comes to our sanctification, that is becoming more like Robert Shaw, becoming more like Jesus, taking on his characteristics. When it comes to sanctification, it is more important where we're going than where we are at the moment. So when you are struggling with sin, struggling with comparing yourself to your friends around you, struggling with um, not even really desiring to read the Bible or to pray or to obey your parents or whatever it may be. Remember, 
not only are we becoming more like Jesus, but it, the ultimate goal is what we should be more focused on rather than what we're doing at the moment. Who we are rather than what we're doing, a posture of heart. So he's not asking us to be good people. He's not asking us just to show random acts of mercy around us, to be illogically like meek and shy, to never instigate conflict with those around us. Rather, he's asking us to be a certain kind of person like him, one who recognizes that left to ourselves, we would rather sit in the corner and starve to death than to be with him, but one who first understands the cost of following him. There's bullets whizzing by, but it's better to be with him. So, I told us last week, every week we're going to try to answer three questions. Do you remember what they were? Every time this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to try to answer three questions. First one, who are we? Remember the next one? Man, you guys were paying attention. Who ought we become, and how do we get there? So who are we? Spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer. We are left to ourselves. We're in the corner. But who ought we become? Sons of God, remember, imitators of him, taking on his character qualities, and one who wills one thing, pure in heart, to, give, to live only for the glory of God. But how do we get there? Do we get there just by becoming better people, having some better habits? So how do we get there? A posture of heart, right? Recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy and trusting that Jesus has, what? Given us his righteousness and forgiven us of our sin. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us, and we become more like him for, for just being in his presence changes who we are. It's the gospel. Law always follows grace. So let's this week follow our leader, follow our Messiah and our King, and as we are so enamored by him, just being in his presence begins to shape who we are. And listen, we should never be discouraged by who we are not now. We should rather be encouraged by where we're going. However, if these things are not true of you, you never see any of these character qualities in your life, then we should use this opportunity to reflect, do I know this man? Do I follow this man? Is he my leader? Is he my Messiah? Is he my king? And if not, then what a great opportunity to say, maybe I don't believe the gospel. Maybe I've been trying to earn this all along. Maybe I've been trying to just show up on Sunday mornings and be a good kid instead of believing the gospel. So if that's true of any of you guys, please, please come to me, come to JJ or Danielle or Kelly or certainly your parents. Let's talk about belief in the gospel and becoming more like our king. Okay? God, thank you for this great sermon. Thank you for how you have taught us through your word to be pure in heart, to will one thing, your own glory. But God, thank you for first beginning with our own poverty of spirit, our own spiritual bankruptcy, and 
showing us that we have nothing before your great character, your great holiness, your great righteousness. But nevertheless, you, like a good shepherd, have brought us into your presence through the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. So God, I pray that throughout this week that we would delight in the gospel, delight in what Jesus has done for us, delight and be satisfied by your word and your presence as we become more like Jesus. Yeah, we pray for all of these things that you would gain great glory, that many would come to worship Jesus. We pray all these things not for our own glory, not to become uh, more liked or more approved of by our parents or our friends, but we pray all these things for the great glory of the King Jesus. In his name, amen.